Welcome to AI Arthritis Voices 360, the podcast solving today's most pressing issues in the AI arthritis community. We invite you all to the table where together we face the daily challenges of autoimmune and autoinflammatory arthritis. Every Sunday, join Tiffany and her fellow patient co-hosts as they lead discussions in the patient community as well as consult with stakeholders worldwide to solve the problems that matter most. Whether you are a loved one, a professional working in the field, or a person diagnosed with an AI arthritis disease, this podcast is for you. So pull up a chair and take a seat at the table. Oh, and welcome to AI Arthritis Voices 360. We are bringing you part two of a new pilot breakout series we're calling Roomy Rounds. It is a series of episodes that we hope will benefit our community greatly by uniting two very important stakeholder groups. We have the patient stakeholder group and the rheumatology professionals. So we invite these parties to take their seat in a roundtable discussion where we can speak on equal levels to discuss important topics that, if solved, can improve community outcomes. So this is a breakout series. Uh, we did air part one last week. So if you've not listened to that, that's okay. We are still talking about the same topic, but different points within that conversation. So you can listen to these out of order. No problem. And then when you're finished, make sure you do go back and listen to part one because it was very interesting as well. So a little bit more about Rumi Browns before we start. This was established based on patient reported needs that we heard by talking to our peers in the community. We, meaning the International Foundation for Autoimmune and Autoinflammatory Arthritis, we are led by people living with these diseases, including myself. My name is Tiffany. And uh, well, my... I've had many diagnoses. Right now, I'm going with non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis. And uh, I was joined by Kelly Conway, co-founder, and she also is living with these diseases. Our guests in this episode are uh, Dr. Alfred Kim, who is from Washington University in St. Louis. He's also assistant professor of medicine and pathology and immunology and the founder and director of the WashU Lupus Clinic. And then Dr. Kim also brought with him Jarek Leong, Master of Public Health Program at St. Louis University, who was working with Dr. Kim on conducting research within the lupus clinic on patient needs and communication barriers that include a focus on the importance of social support. So let's dive in, take a seat to listen to part two of Rumi Rounds as we continue the conversation exploring the barriers between patients and rheumatologists in the office setting. I think it's a good transition into uh, these, these final few talking points that we had, uh, the barriers. So we mentioned the time, that's a big barrier. And Kelly, you brought up Dr. Google. And so that leads me to uh, the question about uh, what is it like Dr. Kim, when an educated patient walks into your office, <laughs> and I'm not talking about myself, let's leave myself out of the Yes, equation. the students of Dr. Google. <laughs> um, because there is a whole variety of different education. Um, but the, I, I mean, 
it's I think this the the, the topic really is uh, what you know. What are your thoughts, and how does a patient translate the information that they want to in a respectful way? Yeah. So I think it's interesting to hear what Dr. Google says. Um, I don't always Google the diseases that I treat. I actually rely on the patients to tell me what perceptions are out there. And I think this is important because antidote, end of one story is not data. And the plural of antidote is still not data because there are always recall biases. There are emotional things that are attached to that. And so I think this is where the discordance, I think, you know, when you said earlier for both, you know, Kelly and Tiffany, I, you know, I love how you say that the visit is emotional. And I think this is something that I need to remind myself when I see patients, because what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to say, okay, what are the facts? And then if each fact has a kind of a limited sphere of meaning and anything beyond that is interpretation. ANA testing is a good example. A positive ANA test is a positive ANA test. It's not a lupus test. A lupus test would be an interpretation of that fact, all right? Mm -hmm. So what I'm trying to do at each visit is to make sure that the information that's being given and, and portrayed, I, what I try to do is educate the patient to try to understand what it is to say, you know, if it makes sense to me, but I can't really say why, those are moments where you have to almost question yourself. So there are data showing that uh, 80% of our assumptions are wrong. Um, and these assumptions are largely driven because they make sense. Uh, there's a, a book called Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. He's a Nobel Prize winning economic behavioralist at Princeton. And he delves into his Nobel Prize winning work was delving into the behaviors of economic decision making, which are often fraught with uh, poor decision making because some of the decision making is based off of assumptions. And so I want to make sure that uh, the patients that see me understand the divide, which is really challenging because oftentimes, you know, if you feel like no one else has addressed a certain symptom and this website said they can address your symptom, that's a solution. I can't say if it's a solution or not. I'm definitely not going to say I'm going to discount it prima facie or I'm not going to accept it you know, prima facie. I will just say that, you know, it is an option we could explore it, but I can explain why this may not be the best option. To me, it's a learning experience. For other physicians, they're a little bit more time constrained than me. I can see it, it could be a source of frustration, mm -hmm. right? Because they're trying to say, you know, one of the things I, I forgot to mention earlier is that actually from a medical perspective, I have a pretty good idea what's going to happen in that visit, even before talking to anyone. I've reviewed the records, mm -hmm. right? I kind of have an anticipation of how it's going to go and what to do. It's just a matter of getting to that finish line. So within there is going to be antidote from the internet and some facts, right? But mm -hmm. the, I think for a lot of physicians, the emotional aspect is not necessarily actionable from a medical perspective. It's certainly actionable from a social determinant perspective. Right. And that's, that's, I, I put a little timestamp on this because I just loved everything that you were, were talking about there. I think it's so relevant because I'm going back to this whole emotional versus clinical, you're also dealing with the patient's history. So many of us have heard, uh, well, it's all in your head. There's nothing wrong with you. 
And so especially those early visits that you have before you develop the relationship with the doctor and even afterwards, it's almost like uh, um, uh, it puts you on the defensive when you walk in. It's like anything in life. You have your experiences drive your emotional reactions, right? So if you have a history of a rheumatologist saying something to you, it that worry or that that I know for me, I always worry that, oh, what if I if I'm finally doing better because I've had experiences where I do better on my medication and then I'm told by a new physician, well, I don't see anything wrong with you. There you shouldn't be on medication. And the reality is I'm better because of the medication. Uh, so but I I have that. Now that's drilled in my head that that is a fear that I can't seem to get rid of. Thank goodness I found a good doctor that I don't think will do that. I think, you know, these experiences, and you mentioned this earlier, Kelly, but this is not just shared with a lot of patients is that, you know, part of the self-management of being a, a patient with a chronic illness is learning how to advocate for yourself. Yeah. I find that so pathetically sad that has to occur, right? And there, there's advocacy within so many different parts of the system as well, you know, with your doctor, even with the receptionist, with, with, uh, you know, insurance. I'm fighting with insurance now over something that I just do not understand. But it's that advocacy piece. And, you know, again, that's nothing. I always say I didn't grow. I didn't. I wasn't a little girl and planning to grow up to be a patient advocate. That never I didn't even know what that was. But when I got sick and I didn't know what to do and I started seeing all this other stuff going on, I was like, wait, somebody has to learn how to do this. So luckily I found Tiffany. My sister from another mister. And we were able to put something together. But I think you're right. It is very sad because these things, they're so it's so multi-layered and there's so many different things. And I think the most important thing that I think patients need to realize is that, you know, doctors are people too. I understand we're all going through pain, but, you know, there is no simple magic pill. And, you know, the doctor I was with at the ACR, I mentioned something. I said, I'm so sorry. I just, I feel so foggy today. My brain is just brain fog. And he said to me, you know what? Can I ask you a question? Um, what is that? What does it feel like? And I was like, well, that's something everybody talks about. And I really, I tried to explain it to him the best I could. And he's like, you know, I just don't know what it would feel like. And I, I hear patients say it all the time but I've never experienced it where I've experienced pain. So I can wrap my brain around that. But what is the brain fog? And I was like, wow, it's all about painting pictures in somebody's mind of what something is. Because again, there's no clinical test that says, oh yeah, she has brain fog. That's an interesting point in itself, Kelly, because brain fog is historically associated more with lupus, right? Than the other diseases. However, I do not have lupus. And I experience a lot of bouts of brain fog. And uh, that's one of the, we did a study in 2013, the early symptoms of AI arthritis study between six diseases, lupus being one of them, but it didn't matter which diagnosis you had, the patient had at least 30% reported experiencing brain fog within the first 12 months of onset. So it's a real it's a real issue. (laughs) And that just brings in the whole communication and opening the door when you have this little minimal window of time and talking to a rheumatologist. I don't know. Do would a rheumatologist even believe me because it's not associated with lupus. So it's those kind of things as well. Or even worse, maybe the physician never experienced it. 
right? So the other thing that's really striking is that there are a lot of physicians that aren't really, are, there aren't patients, mm-hmm. right? And it, it's, it's, it's very confusing to me because if you are going to do something, you have to experience first, you know, that, that, but a lot of physicians largely are healthy. There are certain ones that have had medical issues like cancer or whatever. And so they've gone through a cycle of where, you know, they understand at a much more intimate level what it means to provide care in a more global sense. I, 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 I wondered that of the physicians that don't necessarily have experienced um, a medical illness that's relatively severe or chronic, how are we supposed to actually understand? You know, we can try to be as empathic as possible, but it, it, it becomes challenging because now you're working with assumptions, right? And I loved how the example of Kelly, how your physician asked, what is, it, what is brain fog, right? And that's a great example of that clarification, right? To make sure that your physician understood specifically how this impacts you. Well, and you know what else was interesting that I thought, because I said it to somebody else and they went, oh my gosh, how could a rheumatologist not know that? And I was like, no, it was, he. I don't expect anybody to know all the answers. And the fact that he actually had the guts to say to me, what is it? You know, he wanted to know. He was seeking that knowledge. So I think, you know, again, the patient I was when I was diagnosed in my 30s is not the patient I am that I'm now 50. You know, it's... I've grown with it as well. And I think doctors do as well, but I think we all hit visits at different points. And I think, unfortunately they become natural barriers that I think nobody is really aware of or nobody talks about. So again, relationships with your rheumatologist, I said, I've kissed a lot of frogs in the rheumatology world, you know? Uh, And I, they're going to have to drag my rheumatologist away from me kicking and screaming. So, you know, those things, you know, the thought of moving, that's a scary thing for me. Um, but that exchange of information is really important. Really, really important. Jarek, did you have something to add? Yeah, I just, um, just another, just sticking on this anecdote with this rheumatologist who asked you what brain fog is also that they, that person was um, comfortable admitting that they didn't, they, they probably could un- define what brain fog was, but just being comfortable with understanding that that's one way of knowing what brain fog is. And then the, the patient side is another way of knowing that's equally as valid as the way the rheumatologist would understand it from a clinical perspective. And I think the, you know, a lot of doctors aren't necessarily comfortable being in that space where they're not no longer the expert because that's kind of the way that medical education works here is that you're trained to be the expert and the human body and physiology and disease and everything. And when you're put in a position saying, oh wait, I actually, you know, I'm not the expert anymore. Just so, so inviting others to share perspective and knowing that your, your perspective as the doctor is not the only perspective. I think that is really well highlighted in that, in that anecdote. Yeah. And I also, I do want to stipulate this. He isn't my doctor. He was a rheumatologist I was doing an event with. So that's where, you know, I, I wonder if, if I was his patient, if that question would have come out as well. But again, we were communicating on a totally different level at that point. Interesting point. <laughs> you yeah, were in the doctor's Yeah, visit. <laughs> this wasn't, yeah, this wasn't my, my, my rheumatologist. And, and it's also funny. I will go in 
uh, my doctor knows that I attend the ACR events and that I advocate for patients' rights. And I do advocacy for the ACR, the American College of Rheumatology. And, you know, she'll sit down and say, hey, you know, talk about this. These are some key things. And she said, you know, I can't believe I'm talking to a patient about this. And I think it's because, you know, you she might have, I think I'm the only one in her practice that does advocacy. And again, I live in a very populated area. But again, that patient advocacy piece is so foreign, you know, to a lot of people. So, you know, you don't speak up. The doctor knows everything. And I think, you know, we're all growing, especially mm-hmm. in this field, because it's not clear cut. We're not clear cut. Like I said, mm-hmm. I call myself a hot mess because <laughs> there's so many things going on and managing all those things. And I know when I go in, I forget to say things. So that's why I think it's really being prepared to go into a, a doctor's appointment is important. Great segue. <laughs> because I was like going that. Yeah, I was going to ask the question is uh is we've talked about a lot of the barriers and uh some things like advocacy being a voice for yourself. Uh and of course we understand that we have to work as a community to develop some tips and some resources because we don't have the all of the answers yet. This is just a, an opening discussion. What do we know that does work? What are like Dr. Kim, what if you could could define a great patient communicator, what would fall under that category? I think the most important trait that I see is a patient who truly understands themselves and their symptoms. Um, <clears throat> in our society, largely we're very we, we, we apply hyperbole all the time. <laughs> and I just did it right there. <laughs> right, it's the best thing ever, or the worst thing ever, and sometimes you know, when that happens, it kind of emotionally myself, I, I almost discount that, mm-hmm. right? So I want to know how, truly how does it impact that patient, but also if the patient is able to give some granularity to a symptom. Say they say they're achy, right? That could be anything, and it could be you know hundreds of different diseases right off the bat. So if the patient is able, and you know, we are helping the patient prompt them, trying to get into that granular aspect about, well, you know, where does it hurt? Let's start off with the hands. Does it hurt in the hands? Sometimes patients are like, well, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I'm just thinking, okay, so what I need to do, you know, and this is going to take time, won't be that visit, is to be able to get them to think about more details about their health, have a, 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 a stronger relationship between them and their own body, mm-hmm. right? Because that ultimately, end of the day, is the most important pieces of data for us as rheumatologists to act on. You know, so sometimes it does require uh, uh, patients to have a, a much more heightened awareness of what's going on with them, mm-hmm. um, and it's usually those then that communicate better, whether it's natural or with some prompting, with some additional questions from us. But if they are able to think about it. At a, at a deeper, uh, a more specific level, that helps immensely. And that's where a lot of communication uh, issues from a medical perspective um, tend to um, um, basically get addressed. What about specific tools? Uh, printing out, well, I actually, I had shared this one on social media not long ago. I have it sitting right in front of me. This was how I got diagnosed. <laughs> so this is my actual chart that I made myself from 2007 to 2000. It has the exact dates of every area of onset. So 
Some doctors I've heard think those are great. I, you know, some just lay, I've, I've experienced it. Some have laid it off to the side. I've had rheumatologists tell me I don't look at photos. Some say photos are great. <laughs> so what about tools? Because I ask be, for this for the sole reason that in the patient population, the patient community, when we're sharing tips with each other, that's what we tell each other to do. So are we right? <laughs> suggesting that. No, I think I love tools. Um, It's sometimes hard to review them in the visit because then it takes me away from actually being able to clarify things with the patient. So what I ask our patients is if they have something like that, or if they want to send in a list of things they want to discuss at a visit, send it to me a week before. Ooh. Right. So where I have a little bit more time and I can put more thought into it. Right. Um, because, you know, if I'm supposed to, um, if someone says, you know, I have 12 things I need to address and one of those 12 things is related to disease and 11 of the other things deal with their quality of life. And I only have 20 minutes to see them. And on top of that, I have to make sure that their medical aspect of their disease is in a remiss state that makes me feel more comfortable mm-hmm. having them leave the door. You know, that's, that becomes a lot, that's too much uh, pressure, you know, and, and I think that erodes the communication uh, you know, bridge. And that goes right back to what you said before, Dr. Kim, about your goals and expectations moving into uh, one of the visits is planning. You plan. You said, I know a roundabout idea of what's going to happen because I plan, I read. So that is a great tip to circumvent back to the tools and the the kind of information that we'll obtain from this conversation. So thank you so much for that. Um, Kelly, did you have anything to add? No, I, 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 I would love to be able to email some things ahead of time. I don't know if every rheumatologist has that uh, capability, but that might be something I'm going to ask when I go in. Okay, great. Um, I had one more, one more question to sort of uh, visit, but before I do, is there anything else that Jarek or Dr. Kim, you wanted to add to any of the points that we've already talked about? I I found it interesting, Tiffany, that you found me through research because I think there is actually a real paucity of online resources that actually work when you're trying to find a doctor. Mm -hmm. We actually, I know in New York City for a brief period of time, there was discussion about putting physicians on Yelp. And there was a huge backlash amongst physicians. They didn't want to be evaluated colloquially. They want, you know, I don't even know what that means because the current, you know, you know, metrics that are out there, it's all colloquial anyway. I mean, it's the patient's experience. So in a way that almost is saying, you know, I don't want to know what the patients are telling each other, you know, which is, Mm. uh, which is insane to me. But, you know, something that we had talked about within our own lupus clinic is, do we go on Yelp? Because it's such a common platform and that they can just go in and they just could type in what they want, you know, in a, you know, in in an environment that they're used to, Mm -hmm. right? They do it for restaurants. They do it for any other service. Why not physicians? I'm I'm sure there are a lot of physicians going to be like, oh, this is a slippery slope and they can list a lot of good reasons why this shouldn't happen. I just can't think of them right now. Right. Well, I can tell you that it's only in the United States because I have looked to see if if this site is international. And I'm interested from people listening if there are sites like this in other places. But health grades 
is where, uh, and, and, and by the way, right before we got on, I did look, Dr. Kim, and you have five stars. <laughs> like one review? No, there's a few, and I have not reviewed yet, so I will go in and review. But, uh, but that, I, when, that's one of the places I know that I went uh, to review. And, and interestingly enough, the rheumatologist who I did not research before, when I initially moved back to St. Louis, I looked up on health grades and, and she had one star. <laughs> so had I done a little bit more research, I never would have went to her in the first place. And interestingly enough, the things that I found disappointing were all listed by the patient comments. And, and, and so, uh, but it's, we do talk to each other in communities. I can't tell you how many times I've been in an online community and somebody will say, Hey, does anyone have a recommendation for a rheumatologist in X? YZ city. I know as a, there are some organizations that have lists of recommendations, but you know, I don't know how patient preferred they are, how, how, you know, if they're patient recommended, but yeah, I, I researched because mainly I researched because I failed to do so for the first time. And I ended up with a frog like Kelly had, and it was not a, it was not a, a good experience. Uh, and speaking of not good experiences, there's the, 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 the last question I wanted to touch on. When is it time to part ways? <laughs> when is it time to say this isn't working? And I think in, in our, our community as patients, we talk about this a lot, but it's fair, I think, for rheumatologists to accept the fact that maybe there's not a good dynamic as well on, on your end. Uh, we, we use the word fire a lot, you know, fired my roomie. Uh, and that I've done that. I know Kelly has done that. Um, and that just means that we were fed up with, for whatever reason, and we left. And that's what it means. We don't literally say to them, <laughs> you're fired, you're out of here. Uh, what are your thoughts about that, Dr. Kim? It, you know, it's, it is a two-way street. So um, Jared touched on this earlier, but I think ultimately it's trust, right? Does the provider trust that the patient is doing everything in goodwill uh, and not intentionally self-defeating, right? Um, and vice versa, is the, does the patient trust that the physician is doing everything within their own power to be able to address issues? The emotional, social determinant aspects are often neglected. And before Jared um, joined our research group and did his research about social support erosion, I was guilty of that too. But the reason is because I was never trained in it. So I never thought to even recognize it as something that needed to be addressed. So now, but you know, so actually what's interesting is that I still don't know how to address it. I just know how to recognize it. But what we are able to do in our clinic is we were able to bring in an occupational therapist who helps with um, essentially improving the experience of living with disease. And so for lupus patients, oftentimes it's learning how to improve your self-management, which will help to lead to increased adherence to medicines and visits. It's learning how to deal with brain fog and cognitive dysfunction. It's also uh, related to um, like, uh, you know, caregivers too. You know, how can caregivers learn to provide the adequate support? Um, not that every resource can be, or every issue can be addressed, but what I recognize is that since I can't do it, I need to find someone who can. 
-hmm. So that is the other level of trust from the patient to the physician is the patient needs to say, listen, I heard all over and you keep ignoring it. You know, I, I, this is my complaint for the last six visits. You know, I just want to know, you know, is there anything we can do about it? And if we, I like you, but if we can't necessarily fix this problem, can you at least point me in the direction that allows mm -hmm. me to address this problem? All right. And so oftentimes physicians ignore things or don't address it, ignores too strong of a word, don't address it. So because we're ill-equipped to handle that specific issue. Oh. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and so if it doesn't fit within our ability, our skill set, for example, if someone came in treat, wanting treatment for small cell cancer of the lung, <laughs> poor outcomes, right? And, you know, it's just, I can't help them, right? So that problem persists even medically. Mm -hmm. So for me, I just want to make sure that I know when my limits are hit. And that's my own honesty to myself. And then when that's hit, I need to figure out a strategy to get them so that it can be addressed professionally. That's, that's a great recommendation um, because I know that one of the bigger reasons that we hear patients, well, a couple leave is the listening, which we've already covered. I, I'm not being heard. They're, they're telling me nothing's wrong with me. But the other one is treatment expectations and not not meeting those uh i know jarek you had it, seen that in the research correct yeah and it came up a lot with specifically medications and um when new medications are prescribed and patients feel like they're led to believe a certain thing about the medication that's going to affect these symptoms but it doesn't but the doctor's like well you know like yeah it's it doesn't it's not it just the Patients ultimately, patients feel like they they're kind of led to believe certain things that don't end up being true, and that's just erodes trust. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Maybe a speech language pathologist can help with those to help people <laughs> communicate better. Ooh, I'm I'm forming my my post retirement speech therapy <laughs> career here. So actually, you bring up something. It's interesting because I'm also thinking back to medical school. I was never really trained to speak with patients right? Mm -hmm. You're just thrown into mm -hmm. the situation and they have an in inherent trust that you're going to figure it out, which leads to incredible diversity of patient-physician interactions, I think. And also, how do physicians then learn to talk to patients? It's from the people senior to them. And if the people senior to them don't speak well with patients, they're going to continue on. So there needs to, like, I think the big takeaway from that I want to communicate is that do, like, specific skill trainings both for doctors mm -hmm. and for patients that agree with each other like that's i think that's you know it's very broad but i think you know this podcast and the work that you both are doing um really speaks to the patient side but i think you're also helping communicate with having people like other physicians including dr kim on the podcast communicating about their perspective it's all this is all in that vein so absolutely uh that's, that's, that was perfectly said, <laughs> by the way, Jarek. And I think it also goes back to what Dr. Kim said earlier when I asked, what is the ideal uh, patient that, that comes in? And, and he just said, they commute, you've got a variety, some communicate well. And that, that's the same with doctors, right? I mean, we're all humans under, underneath it all. 
And we all have different skill sets and different social skills and communication skills. And that, that just plays into it naturally. And, and that's something that we also have to consider. So I think that we have covered everything that we wanted to speak about today. And I just want to uh, reiterate our thanks to both Dr. Kim and to Jarek for coming and speaking with us today and having all voices at the table. So thank you. Yes. Thank you very much. Our pleasure. Thank you for inviting us. Yes, thank you. Absolutely. And just as a reminder, this is an episode that we are turning into a series called Roomy Rounds. If you are a roomie or in the rheumatology community and listening out there, you can sign up if you want to be part of future discussions, be on the show, or just submit some ideas or comments offline. You can hit more details at aiarthritis.org backslash roomy round. See how easy that is? Uh, (laughs) Patients, you also can join uh, discussions about this on our social media sites, which are at IFAI Arthritis on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And you can also sign up for our new online platform at AIarthritisvoices.org. All of the podcasts, this and others, will also be available to view on AIarthritis.org backslash podcast. See, we're just so good with that. Just Boom, boom, boom. And uh, and also you can learn more about being a co-host on the show, submitting your ideas. And if you love the show and you want us to keep moving on, then please consider a donation. Otherwise, we just thank everyone for joining us and taking a seat at the table. Together, we are stronger. Thank you, Kelly. And thank you, everyone, for joining us. Thank you, guys. That was, that was great. AI Arthritis Voices 360 is produced by the International Foundation for Autoimmune and Autoinflammatory Arthritis. Find us on the web at www.aiarthritis.org. Join us again on Wednesday for our special breakout episode, where we bring your comments, questions, and ideas to the table. Also, be sure to subscribe to this podcast and stay up to date on all the latest AI Arthritis news and events. 